Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. My guess is when most of us hear anything about the World Bank, we understandably picture something pretty huge. I mean, it is the World Bank, but also pretty wealthy. My next guest will take us inside an enormously significant institution for the world, especially for many, many of the world's developing nations needing a helping hand from wealthy nations like Australia. Christopher Sheldon is an Aussie with a very interesting journey all the way to heading up a significant area of the World Bank's work with those developing nations. It started off as a two-year secondment. That was more than 13 years ago. One of the many interesting aspects of Christopher's story is the way he's been able to entirely, authentically, practically, often powerfully, integrate his Christian faith into a significant role on the world stage. His is another one of those many stories we bring you on Open House demonstrating how Christian faith can be good for people and good for our world. Christopher Sheldon lives in Washington with his wife and six children and he's in Australia on one of his frequent rush trips. So I'm so glad he spared the time for us this time around. Christopher, welcome to Open House. Thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. And great to meet you. I think it'd be good first up for us to get a clear picture of what the World Bank is it began in the days post World War Two? How and why did it come into being, Chris? Yeah, so after World War Two, there was a real need for reconstruction. So the the World Bank, actually, that that part of the World Bank is called the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development. It started to really help to rebuild initially Europe uh, following the destruction of World War Two, um, but it, it it grew in its role and uh, essentially in those days was really about you know helping with infrastructure development and a lot of rebuilding around the world. Um, then another part of the World Bank started in 1960 called the International Development Association, which is really focused on the world's absolute poorest countries. It's hard to believe that there's around about 1.8 billion people in the world that live on less than $2 a day. So that part of the World Bank really focuses on providing um, grants and loans to the world's poorest at very concessional terms. And the other original part of the World Bank um, focuses more on sort of the middle income countries with um, same goal to uh, reduce poverty, um, but providing loans and, and, um, and support to those countries. So the World Bank's official goal today is the reduction of poverty, which, as we'll see, makes your role a critical one. Why that role for a bank when you'd imagine, well, the goal must be wealth creation? Yes. <laughs> I mean, wealth creation is certainly part of what goes to contribute towards reducing poverty, but it's not the only the only thing. In, in, in fact, I, I work in the oil, gas and mining sector of the World Bank, which is a very small part, but increasingly very significant part of a uh, country's income and development opportunities yes. in many countries. I, I just came from Papua New Guinea, where that's, a, you know, the gas investment and mining is huge there. I work a lot in Africa, where it's one of the biggest sources of growth. But we only have about 55 people that work on oil, gas and mining, and there's around about 10,000 in the World Bank in Washington, D.C. and around the world that work on everything from health and education and infrastructure development. Um, But if I was to take my sector, I mean, it's not that hard to generate a lot of money from oil, gas and mining. But if you really want to transform people's lives, you've got to do a lot more than just create the wealth. It's how you manage the wealth and, um, you know, that it gets invested in the right things. Uh, All of that is critically important to see poverty reduction. Yes, it's one thing for a developing country to have a rich resource. It's another thing entirely for it to manage it well and and make sure it truly benefits its people, truly benefit from it. Uh, absolutely. Yes. And it's, it's kind of strange to believe that in many countries they've almost been caught up in uh, – that they've seen resources a curse, and there's a term, the resource curse, and, and I, I like to try to change that into a resource blessing. 
So we have a whole model in which we look at this and, you know, it goes from everything from having the right laws and policies to attract investment. Uh, you've got to help the countries to get a good deal to negotiate, uh, you know, be able to negotiate on that. Um, you know, for themselves a, a good good investment then they've got to manage it well and it's no point you know digging a lot of gold out the ground if you massively pollute your environment and create all sorts of other problems or if you displace people and don't look after them so we work on a lot of issues around social issues resettlement of people if they have to move that their livelihood and their you know their homes are able to be you know set up in another place that they don't lose out we don't want people to be worse off from these investments we want them to be better off but then you know, the government's got to collect the revenue and yes. then they've got to manage it well. And if they don't invest in the right things, um, then you don't get the development. So we try to sort of transform the, the, the mineral wealth and the oil and gas wealth into really improving people's lives. So that includes health, education, includes infrastructure, really things that you know, are longer lasting than just getting the money now and, and spending the money. But it's difficult at work. And so, you know, that's... Why we're there is to, to help governments to navigate through all of that. When it's working, I'm sure it must be a wonderful thing to see for a nation, but also the people, for such a difference to be made to their lives and nation. Yeah, I, oh, absolutely. That's, that's why I'm, I'm still there. I, I really enjoy that. Yeah. And I've done everything from you know working in um, sort of post-communist Europe to help you know when they went from a communist system where they just produced as much as possible without much regard for environment or cost, and then they came into the sort of capitalist system where things had to pay their way and they were going to lay off, you know, 100,000 workers and close mines. So we, we worked to do the environmental closure, but also social programs to retrain people. Um, we turned old mine sites into, some cases, smaller factories or in one case, a hospital, some cases just into agricultural land. But you come back after years and you see, um, you, know, you, you can't necessarily replace all of those jobs, but to, to see that area transformed into something else which is vibrant and people are getting on with their lives in a new era, uh, it's very exciting. Um, but then, you know, we work everything from the large-scale miners uh, and the oil and gas companies right through to the artisanal and small scale. So I've, you know, been and watched people panning for diamonds in, in you know, gravel pits and, uh, you know, panning for gold. And, um, you know, just like you see the sort of the gold rush pictures back in the 1800s in Australia, there's millions of people actually who do that all around the world. Still happens. Still happens. Even, you know, for, uh, for listeners out there, the, you know, coloured gemstones, almost all coloured gemstones are mined by... Uh, artisanal small-scale miners that just dig in very rudimentary um, manner and, and, and find these stones and eventually they make their way to the world market. So, we, you know, we're working across that full spectrum of sort of the large-scale right through to the small-scale, which makes the job uh, very interesting but also really rewarding when you see the results. Yeah. What an amazing range of experiences over your life. So, as I said, you've had an interesting journey with lots of twists and turns to this role. You began as a humble chartered accountant. <laughs> then you quit, which is an interesting development, to go to Bible school, but a different kind of school than we would imagine. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, I was on a missions trip once and met some people that were at a school here in Australia called Cape and Ray down um, in the Southern Highlands. And I went to visit them one time, and up on the wall I saw this picture of somebody hanging off the side of a mountain on a rope, and it was called Upward Bound. And so it just stuck in my mind. And uh, I'd been uh, working as an accountant for about uh, five years and was very successful there. But I just felt my relationship with God wasn't what it had been in the past. 
and what it really should be. So I wanted to take some time out to really focus on that. And I looked around at all the traditional schools, but this is the one that really sort of tugged at my my soul, I guess you could say. So I went off to Austria and uh, I did this Upward Bound course and then I stayed on for the regular four schools. So I spent about six months there. And Upward Bound was one of these programs, a little bit like the Outward Bound thing you hear about. Yeah. So it, it stretched you physically, but it had spiritual lessons to it. Um, and that, that may sound like I just wanted to go and climb in the mountains in Austria. <laughs> Which you probably uh, did too. <laughs> But it's okay. It was um, an incredibly transforming experience for me. How and, was that? Well, these physical lessons they taught a lot. I, I was thinking about one the other day. Um, one of the first things we did was abseiling. So, you know, going down a, a mountainside on a rope. And they said, look, this rope can hold two cars. It's a strong rope. But yet when you lean on that rope and you start to go down the mountainside, you feel uncertain. Can this thing really hold me? My hands and, are sweating <laughs> as you're speaking. But it, it was, um, and these are big, big mountains there and, and a beautiful setting. But it was a good illustration about faith because it doesn't matter how much faith I have. It's the faithfulness of that object really to hold me. If I had a lot of faith in a piece of string and went off that mountain, I'd truly go off the mountain. Um, but if I, you know, had, uh, you know, I, th- that rope was able to hold me. And many times we know that, you know, God says that he can do things in our lives and yet we fail to trust him. So, you know, that illustration of that rope and its faithfulness and my need to really put my, my faith in that rope to hold me because I knew it would be able to be strong enough um, was just one lesson. But there were, there were many more. I mean, I think the ultimate one for me was just really seeing my own true nature as a, as a sinner without without Christ, and and that was you know, we were many days on the mountains. It had been cold and, and it had been raining, and all I wanted to do was to just get to this hut, and I could see the hut in the distance, and I had other people with me. But my all of my motivation was to just look after myself and just get to that hut, and it was just um, a shock to me because I've always been a people person. I like people, and I thought I would just you know coddle around and help the slower ones and just want them to you know help them to get there. But really, all I wanted to do was just bail on them and get to that mountain hut so when i saw that when i was put under a lot of pressure my true sort of selfish sinful nature came out what that did though that really freed me to realize that to be a christian i can't just do it on my own strength my own will i really need jesus christ in my life to really transform me so for me even though i'd already been a christian prior to that it was the moment when i really surrendered everything to god and really allowed him to, to live through me great and necessary point to get to. So you head to mission work in Europe then, working with street kids in Thailand. Such an interesting journey. And then your connection with Austria took a rather happy turn. Yes, it was very, very nice. Now, I, I, um, I enjoyed being in Austria and I actually went back again a second time yes. to, to learn German and came back to Australia and uh, started working again. And um, I got this letter from some friends in Austria saying that they had a friend that was going to be backpacking around Australia and uh, they gave her my number. So she called and I went to um, to meet her and the friend she was traveling with um, to take them up to the Blue Mountains for the day. And um, that that I didn't know if she was a, going to be a Christian or not. And so I invited her and her friend to church and they came along. Well, she ended up becoming my wife. <laughs> And she likes to tell the story that she she actually met God and her husband on the first day because <laughs> really? on the same day. Well, I, I didn't know if she was a believer or not, so I took her to church, but she actually got uh, saved in that church service that very night. And what an amazing um, day, yeah. So we we became friends um, and just kept in touch as friends. I mean, the the logistics of dating somebody on the other side of the world seemed pretty daunting, and so we 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 were just friends for uh, quite a period of time. But after about nine months, I went to visit her in Austria, and we we started courting, and then I went back again a second time. Then she actually came to Australia and did a discipleship training uh, course with YWAM in Sydney, and I got to know her more, so we got engaged. And so two years after we met, we were married. 
Um, so the German came in in handy. I, I, I didn't know at the time, that, you know, why I was really going to study German. I just really wanted to go and, and, and learn it. So now we, um, my kids actually go to German school, and so we have German in the household. And although my German's not perfect, at least they can't tell any secrets about me over the, <laughs> over the dining room table. Meaning being, it was one of the greatest blessings of my life. And you know, she's a real gift uh, to me. I, someone said to, us, to me once, and I think it's true, you know, we're a match made in heaven, worked out here on earth. And you know, without her support, um, just her love and... Uh, just the you know everything that she means to me i i, I never could have um, done the things that i've been doing the children um she's a mother to six kids she's given up a lot really yes to uh to to, to love and support me but um i'm just so thankful for her chris it's interesting to me that in the midst of such varied roles around the world you've got this idea of going into mission work full-time in those days which you thought was the ultimate thing you could do but clearly god had other plans for you, no less significant in the workforce. Yeah, I used to feel when I was growing up as a Christian that sort of full-time missions or being a pastor or something like that was kind of the ultimate thing Christians could do, and that all the other stuff was somehow second-rate, that it was, you know, more more fulfilling your own self-desires. And so I had that idea, and I think that's part of the reason I left the accounting practice in the, in the first place was to pursue this, but God really brought me back into the workforce. And, um, you know, I... I went to New Guinea because it sounded like it would be an interesting job uh, working as an accountant there. But when I got there, I saw this huge gold mine in the middle of a place that had only really had Western contact for about 15 to 20 years. And the mine had a real need for a good relationship with that local community, and it really saw itself as a guest of theirs. So it invested a lot in the development of the people that lived uh, in and around the mine. And it was this place where I saw this interface between doing something good in helping the people that live there and, and doing business and that the two actually made sense together because prior to that I'd often seen you know, them as completely separate things and, and by that I mean you know, the mind wants to function and, and have a good relationship and the people want to be better off and there's a real you know, common desire to, to, to work well together and they had the resources to really invest and do things and um, I would you know, eventually hire staff while I was working there that had been educated through a children's trust for education that was set up by the mine the company's headquarters in Port Moresby was in a building owned by the landowners from the mine, from the investments that they'd made, from the, the benefits that they'd received. So I started to see that these, the, these two things could go together, and then that launched me into this whole idea of sustainable development and business and the idea that business could do something good in the world. But in strict missional terms, it's not mission work. No, no, but I, you know, I, I was um, having you know Bible studies and Christian fellowship with local Papua New Guineans who, um, you know, and you know, I moved up there with my wife after we were married, and and people were delighted to have us there, planted flowers all around the house to welcome us. We go to the local church, so I, I, I was able to be part of the lives of um, you know of Christians in the in the area, and and um, and you know, and, and other people who weren't Christians, and just be. Um, somebody that God used in that place. And so it, it was not traditional missions, but I've been working cross-culturally for almost 20 years, and that was really the start of it. Yeah, and making a real difference. I'm sure you have myriad numbers of wonderful stories where you can point to to say, this is the work that we do and this is how it works. Is there Are there one or two that you could relate to us? Um, well, even before I joined the World Bank, I still worked in the mining company on these uh, community development issues. 
and uh, there was one the really terrible situation where uh, um, there'd been a mining disaster and it had heavily polluted a river so i had to go in and, and to try to compensate people and to make them not just back to where they were financially but try to give them something um, better so we worked a lot with the local government and with local ngos to organize community development activities all the way along that river everything from agricultural programs to you know um, small microfinance schemes and, and you meet people that had a very small loan and they bought some sticks and a barbecue and some plastic containers for sauces and then they ended up having a thriving you know barbecue food business or um, some some fishermen that wanted some motorized boats to get further out to the fishing fields and then they made so much money they invested in a freezer and then they could store the fish so they didn't have to sell everything at market if they had a good catch they could keep some for the future um but in in the world bank i've got a lot of satisfaction lately from seeing a lot more revenues come into countries from the work we're doing um it's always a, a balance of increasing revenues but still attracting investments so helping some governments to navigate through that and one of my client countries is seeing their revenues uh, more than double in the last few years just from little tweaks and improvements in the partly the market as well but also the tweaks that they've made but I, the stuff that warms my soul is normally the things that connect most closely with people. And there was um, a situation in Uganda. We gave a small grant to a group of women salt miners in southwestern Uganda. Uh, there's a, a lake down there called Lake Catway, which has um, salt that, that just naturally forms in the lake. And because of heavy rains, um, all their salt pans had been uh, severely damaged and they couldn't earn an income. So we helped the women to organize into a group and we gave them a small grant and they bought shovels and sticks and straw and they rebuilt their pans. Well, I, I visited them and we were sitting there in this really simple hut and they were all on the floor and started telling their stories. And it was a small grant of only around $5,000, but it was enough for them to rebuild the pans. They made enough money um, from those pans. They bought a tent and all these chairs. And I'm thinking, a tent and chairs, what, 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 that's an unusual <laughs> thing to do. But they used that tent and chairs to rent out for parties. The, the profits from renting out for parties sent every single one of their children to school that year. So they had their pants back. They you know, all got all the money back from the grant and they'd invested it into something else. And that was, you could see the, the pride on their face that they had an opportunity to earn a good income, to send their kids to school. But also they invested in this cooperative. So they had something of worth, sort of almost like shares, you know, a little entity that they could sell back to the cooperative or they could transfer to somebody else. That was just a real empowering uh, experience for those women. And the benefits will trickle down to the next generation and who knows what after that. Yes, now it's really rewarding. And, you know, I'm not expecting everybody to stay in, in salt mining, but with those kids getting an education through that, you know, who knows what else they'll go on and do. You know, people really struggle a lot in these countries and anything you can do that improves the quality of their lives makes a, a big difference. And it's not just the money, it's often the technical assistance that you bring. They are just opening their eyes up to other opportunities, um, being able to understand geology and where to find the minerals and being able to understand the benefit in, of investing in their future um, rather than just consuming their, their things today, being able to help them to be organized in a way and to plan ahead. Um, and, and then, you know, working with the bigger companies too, just seeing how they can invest in the communities around them and electrification I was one place where the company had invested in um, an electrification project where the government did all the infrastructure but they paid for the costs and you could see all these businesses spin up around the mine you know hairdressing salons small shops mostly run by women and youth who previously just didn't have that opportunity because there was no electricity there at all I'm inspired Chris alongside all of this and in the midst of an undoubtedly busy life around the world and the demands of six kids in Washington is a vibrant and engaging Christian faith. How has that 
practically impacted on your life, your family, and your work? Yeah, with, without the impact of um, Jesus in my life, and I, I honestly believe nothing that I've, I'm doing would have even been been possible. Um, all I've ever really tried to do is to just yield myself over to what God really wanted me to do. And what I found in doing that is that you know, God's been able to do so much more in my life than I could have ever imagined. I, li- I like that verse, you know, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than you could even ask for or imagine. And that's really been the experience in my life. You know, when I try to set my own personal goals, I, I, I actually think they were shooting far below yes. what God really had in store for me. Yes. And all I've really tried to do is to just be available and be obedient and take each step at a time, not even knowing where each step would lead. And even these opportunities, you know, going to New Guinea, I applied, but to move to the Philippines, they just asked me. They moved to the World Bank. They just called me and said, "Look, this is opportunity. Would you be Would you be interested?" And I, you know, I said yes. I still have to go through interviews and apply, but these are things that God's really led me into. Um, but in my own, I mean, my marriage wouldn't be the same. The, the, you know, if I didn't know how to forgive and ask for forgiveness and hit the refresh button on my marriage, I wouldn't have the same marriage. If I um, it, raising my children, teaching them to be obedient, but not being so strict on them that they um, you know, feel uh, the Bible says the word exasperated, but frustrated. Um, but just learning how to raise them, being consistent with them, and showing the love to them. Uh, also trying to be excellent in the in the workforce, and just showing genuine love and care for people. And that flows through also into the work I do. You know, with the World Bank, um, it's the relationships with my coworkers where I feel I can make a difference. But also in the you know the, the relationships with the the client countries, and it's just driven by a desire and a genuine uh, love for people. And all of that has really come from knowing Jesus. I'm sure along the way it's required a fair bit of trust because there are lots of unanswered questions about where you might head and what things might lead to. Yeah, there's been that. And when you're going into a new area in life, you can have a lot of fear about what is that going to bring. But if you really deep down know that God loves you, wants the best for you, then you can trust him to, to bring you through. Now, that doesn't mean I haven't had difficult experiences. You know, I love being in Australia. I really miss the family. I miss my friends. Uh, I miss the beaches when I fly in and I see those beaches. Um, I'm about four hours from beaches that no Australian would probably go to, you know. Um, but I, 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 it's, there's been a cost, but there's also been a great blessing. And, I, and so I fully believe, and my experience continues to bear this out, that, you know, God wants the best for me and that he's going to bring me into the place where things are the, are the best. And the future after such an interesting journey, do you have any sense of where it might lead? As far as you can see, because I often think, oh, God's got very different plans. No, and, and that um, sort of goes back a little bit to the last question. I, yes. I, I really don't, don't know, but I know I'm in the right place at the right time, living in Washington um, and, uh, and, and working where I am at the World Bank. And I'm very thankful to have the opportunity to be there. And I really enjoy my life there very, very much and with my family and my children and my friends there and the church there. But I... I'm completely open to wherever God would want to send us next and also to stay. I mean, I tried to to leave many times thinking that, you know, this was only going to be temporary and we ended up staying because that was really God's best for us. But I'm I'm equally open to wherever God would send us in the future and I fully trust that he's going to bring out what's the best, the best for his purposes, but they're also going to be the best for me and for everybody else in the family. And for the good of the world, I'm sure. It's been such a an interesting and um, thought-provoking chat. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you very for much. Joining us. It's a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this Open House podcast. Thanks to Christian Super and Real World Technology Solutions. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.